Welcome to Fridays with Fintelect. My guest today is Leah Calon Butler, director of Emphasis, a consulting firm based in the Philippines, focused on the role of technology, especially blockchain and crypto, in advancing economic development across the Asia Pacific. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Super. Leah, at the outset, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career, how you started working in the world of crypto? and also something about emphasis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thanks again for having me. Uh, my name's Leah Callan Butler, and uh, I guess my background, I've, I've always worked with really early stage companies um, and in the field of emerging technologies. So working with them at that stage where uh, it's a brand new technology, they're taking it to the world, perhaps the consumers don't quite understand how it's going to help solve their problems just yet. And we work with them to help find product market fit. So uh, today I'm focused on crypto and blockchain, but I've worked in all sorts of spaces like uh, renewable energy and data analytics chemical manufacturing, uh, all sorts of different industries. And I guess what they all have in common is that uh, when you're bringing a new technology into the world, it isn't always clear uh, to consumers how it can um, help solve their needs. So um, with Emphasis, we, we started out in 2019, um, but I've been in the crypto space since about 2016. Um, I was drawn to the space because I was really inspired by how this technology was being used to empower people, especially in emerging economies. And not just for the financial aspects of the technology, but also other use cases for blockchain as well. So everything from digital identity right through to things like peer-to-peer -peer energy trading on the blockchain. So there's many, many different use cases. And uh, I think we're seeing great adoption of those in emerging economies. So in 2019, my business partner, Nathan Smale and I, we started Emphasis because we recognized that there was a real need in the crypto and blockchain industry to uh, more effectively communicate how these technologies are improving people's lives. And uh, we saw that there are a lot of really visionary founders with quite complex technologies. Um, but constantly I was hearing from people saying, oh, I just don't get blockchain, it goes over my head. And I felt quite frustrated about that because um, I don't want this technology to be so intimidating to, to the masses because uh, it really is easy to understand, provided that people are telling the right stories about um, how the technology is evolving. So uh, since then, we've worked with a range of different companies um, all across the globe, um, but we have a few areas of real uh, niche expertise. One of those is uh, regulation and compliance. Um, obviously, that space is very fast evolving and uh, in that space Emphasis has done things like uh, you may have heard of the V20 summit um, the inaugural summit was held uh, at the G20 summit in Osaka Japan and that was where we actually brought together the financial action task force with regulators and policymakers and the top crypto exchanges from all across the world to discuss a newly proposed uh, recommendation around the FATF travel rule. Um, so I'll talk a bit about that later, but um, that's a good example of some of the work that we've done in terms of facilitating industry collaboration around regulation and compliance and, you know, how do we tackle challenges within the industry? Um, we've also done things like uh, we worked with the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Bhutan to take them on their first steps toward building a national blockchain roadmap. 
We've worked on an annual survey with a cryptocurrency exchange in Australia called Independent Reserve, which measures the changing levels of trust and confidence with everyday Australians as they approach digital assets. Um, and possibly what we're known best for is actually our work in the Philippines. Um, recently, we launched a documentary called Play to Earn, which is all about uh, NFT or non-fungible token gaming in the Philippines and how it's delivering financial inclusion. So if you haven't checked out the documentary, please do. Um, but really the theme across all of this is how do we drive mass scale adoption of crypto technologies and uh, ensure that they're adopted in a safe and responsible manner? Right, excellent. So I did check out the documentary and you know, it is very, very fascinating uh, you know, to see um, you know, the impact that you know, NFTs have had on uh, you know, normal lives of uh, citizens, right? Uh, so that, that really was uh, very fascinating. So, uh, yeah, we cannot have any conversation these days, uh, you know, unless we speak about the pandemic in some way. Uh, now, you know, I thought I'll combine that with maybe, you know, what do you see as the significant milestones in the evolution of crypto, right? Over the last couple of years, do you think the utterance of the pandemic has actually influenced the crypto landscape in any way? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is absolutely yes. Uh, in terms of significant milestones, you know, Bitcoin is little more than 10 years old. So it's a it's a still very new technology. Um, but we've seen incredible advancements, even just in the last 12 months. Um, and I would say that the reason for that is absolutely uh, increasing regulatory clarity. So some of the outcomes of that, we've seen, uh, you know, huge institutions jumping on the Bitcoin bandwagon. Um, for example, we saw MicroStrategy uh, put Bitcoin on its balance sheet. So that was one of the first times we saw um, an institution uh, do an activity like that. We've also seen PayPal uh, offer to its customers to be able to buy Bitcoin through its, um, its services. And uh, we've also seen, you know, Traditional haters of Bitcoin, such as, you know, Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan, they're also backing the technology now. So, I mean, plenty has been said about that. Um, so I won't go into it in depth. But as I said, I, I really think that the change here is that increasing regulatory clarity that is giving people the trust and confidence to be able to move into this space in a more meaningful way. Um, but also what we're seeing too is innovation in the technology. So uh, obviously most people are aware of things like Bitcoin and perhaps even um, the second top cryptocurrency, Ethereum. Um, and Ethereum has had uh, many different use cases through the application of things like smart contracts, which have broadened the, the list of use cases uh, beyond just financial. And I, I touched on that before. But um, now this year, we've really seen um, huge adoption going into new places like decentralized finance or DeFi for short, um, NFTs, and even uh, new areas, which I'll talk about later, like uh, blockchain gaming, which is um, really facilitating huge adoption of these tech technologies through emerging economies. Um, in terms of the pandemic, I think that's a really interesting one because a lot of people have spoken about how the economic fallout of the pandemic and, and the conditions that people were put under in terms of lockdown has driven a lot of adoption of digital technologies and certainly electronic payments. Um, and that has been the case for crypto as well. Just to use one little use case from where I am in the Philippines, um, 
you'll see that when you uh, watch the play to earn documentary, there's a game here that is uh, going nuts. There's uh, literally tens of thousands of people playing it now. And uh, throughout the pandemic, what happened was you had a lot of people in rural areas of the Philippines with, uh, who'd lost their jobs due to the pandemic had absolutely no income and yet they had a mobile phone and internet connection at home which uh, many of them turned to their mobile phones in order to be able to find ways to generate income and playing blockchain games such as Axie Infinity was one of the ways that people did this. Just to describe how it works a little bit, um, so in this game, uh, when people battle their, their pets, their digital pets, which are actually NFTs that you must buy in order to play the game, when you win a battle, you win an in-game reward token. And it's a type of cryptocurrency, which essentially players can cash out should they wish to do it. You can use it in the game or you can cash it out. And what happened was uh, a lot of people who were locked down at home with no other way to make money would play this game around the clock, earning this in-game reward token. And then they would go through the hoops to learn how to cash out cryptocurrency into Philippine peso cash. Now that's not an easy feat. There's actually a lot to learn. And uh, I guess prior to this point, most people didn't have a lot of incentive to actually learn how to do that. So um, through this cute digital pet game, we've actually seen incredible adoption of this technology um, through the circumstances of the pandemic, people being left in the lurch without anything um, else to do in terms of earning an income. And through that, it, it's changed people's lives. So I think it's just a really interesting way to show how um, a terribly you know, an awful situation uh, has actually led to something really quite miraculous in terms of people adopting a, a, a very empowering new technology. Right. So, uh, Leah, do you think this game can actually be uh, extended to other countries? Uh, is that even possible? Uh, is anything happening on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess... Uh, what we're seeing is um, the Philippines is really the epicenter at the moment. There's uh, about half a million players or daily active users on Axie Infinity every day. And it's estimated that about 60% of them are coming from the Philippines. Um, but we're also seeing player communities pop up in places like Indonesia, Vietnam, Venezuela, Peru, Brazil. And it's all these places that kind of share these demographics. And that is that, you know, uh, you've got very poor populations who have traditionally been excluded from any kind of meaningful participation in global economies. Um, but through uh, digital, they're able to overcome their own problems. So whereas they may have um, found it difficult to find a job back home, um, government relief has been lacking through their mobile phone. They've been able to access this digital economy and uh, earn for themselves. It, it would be a miss though, to not point out that um, the second biggest source of traffic to Axie Infinity is actually the United States. Um, and that's because there are two sides to this marketplace. So you've got the players who are grinding to earn those tokens and they sell them via a decentralized marketplace. And the people who are buying the tokens are actually um, you know, people who don't have time to play the game and earn those tokens, but they do have the money. So there is actually this um, 
almost like a this geo arbitrage happening where you've got people who have something to invest which is time and skill into a game and they can earn that money back from the people who are actually quite time poor so it, it's quite an interesting dynamic that's going on there and uh yeah there's absolutely players the world over that are participating in this phenomenon right excellent excellent so uh, you know the uh, regulators and governments in many countries right they generally worry about the speculative nature you know we just spoke about that of cryptocurrency uh, and also the price volatility risk for investors uh, you also mentioned you know about the uh, you know different pricing of nfts now uh, a large number of investors are actually not necessarily uh, you know adequately educated about the risk before they invest what is your opinion on this great question um ultimately my personal opinion is that we shouldn't be excluding retail investors from these markets i think education is key and participation in itself is a learning experience um within the crypto space when people are talking about investing in various digital assets uh with be it cryptocurrencies tokens nfts or defi protocols the message is always never put in more than you can afford to lose and uh you know actually my little sister at the moment is putting $10 a week into crypto and she's won some and she's she's lost some um but she's learning along the way and i think that's a really fantastic experience in terms of democratizing this participation in uh wealth creation opportunities having said that um i do believe that having clear regulation does foster trust and confidence and it does allow these regulated um financial institutions to enter the space and make uh these whole crypto based economies more affordable uh, sorry more accessible um so for example i mean we need strong on off ramps networks otherwise it makes it very difficult for people to get in and out of cryptocurrency um and without clear regulation there's uh you know it's their gray areas it's very risky for regulated financial institutions to to participate in that space so there's a balance there um people do speculate on on these uh these spaces but i also think the media really loves to play that up um and you know there's there's fantastic stories in uh all of the the awful things that you can say about crypto but um you know sometimes it is worth reading between the lines a good example in terms of the nft use case that you just mentioned is that yes um the market was looking super frothy sort of around february march where prices were going through the roof and you know the media was reporting on a 69 million dollar beeple nft which was sold and that certainly turned a lot of heads um but a lot of people who are investing in nfts are actually investing in them because they love these assets An example would be um I'm not sure if you've heard of NBA Top Shot but it's the digital version of basketball trading cards and you know people have poured well I would say a ridiculous amount of money into basketball trading cards for many decades um but that's because you know I'm just not a a basketball enthusiast for those people you know they're very excited that they're now able to earn a a provably scarce provably authentic digital version of their um basketball trading cards and uh in this particular aspect it's called uh NBA Top Shot Moments 
Um, so for them, that's that's really valuable and they would love this kind of digital asset no matter its price. So there's definitely a lot going on there. And as I said, I think it's important to kind of read beyond the headlines to determine uh, what's actually going on uh, in the midst of this phenomenon. Right, right. So uh, Leah, let's uh, speak a bit more about, you know, the whole uh, risk and trust uh, part of it. And so, you know, the intersection of uh, crypto or virtual assets and AML, CFT uh, generally evokes two schools of thought, right? People, uh, some people believe that it is a significant risk. Uh, and there are some who think that the risk is not large enough. Uh, some other typologies in money laundering and terrorist financing. Uh, and in fact, you know, this technology can be used to bring trust and safety to transactions. What is, uh, you know, what are your thoughts around this? Yes. Uh, so I, I think uh, just to be upfront, I think crypto has really struggled to shake its associations with the dark net. I think a lot of people still think of it um, as a tool for criminals because of some of those early narratives. Um, and certainly things like, uh, you know, Mt. Gox, for example, uh, the crash of that exchange and, and others uh, that have come after it, you know, it doesn't help that narrative. But really, if you actually take the time to understand the technology, blockchain is possibly the worst choice for a criminal uh, if they want to be able to obfuscate illicit activity. Um, blockchain is a completely transparent um, financial system and we've it's really um, unprecedented in terms of the way that uh, it allows regulators um, and law enforcers to, to track what's happening within these networks. Cash is still the ultimate privacy coin um, and the vast majority of money laundering and terrorist financing activity does still go through traditional financial institutions. Um, and I think we've seen that plenty of times with things like, you know, from the FinCEN files to the Panama paper, Papers. Um, having said all that, you know, just to get that out of the way, <laughs> I... I do think, uh, you know, the, the industry, the crypto industry isn't against being regulated, but I think a lot of the pushback that comes is that people are asking, well, are these policies effective? You know, is, is the regulation actually effective in meeting policy objectives? Um, and the reason that they're, they're wanting to know that is because essentially compliance raises the cost of doing business. It causes enormous friction with customers and you know smaller firms that uh, you know are on the fringes of our industry will not be able to keep up with those requirements so it does lead to industry consolidation as well but does it present does it prevent illicit activity um, I think you know in the examples that I've used before is that uh, we kind of need to take a holistic approach to this and think about well what are the goals and actually could we potentially embrace blockchain technology to be a better way of being able to prevent this kind of crime. So yeah, I, I guess um, in the race to regulate too, another concern from the industry is that uh, you know if you regulate too quickly, it may be done uh, without proper industry cons consultation and perhaps, you know, the people who have obviously, uh, you know, the best intentions in mind, but they may not really understand how the technology works. And this could lead to unintended consequences and at the same time, not give these new innovations time to develop and flourish and really kind of find product market fit. Um, DeFi is a great example of this. 
uh, at the moment, you know, it's allowing um, uh, innovators and technologists and entrepreneurs to build incredible new solutions, solving a lot of the problems in terms of access accessibility um, and efficiency in terms of financial systems. But if we were to race it right now, you know, I think um, regulators are very concerned about the fact that it is completely permissionless and there's no KYC. Um, but that is one of the the um, aspects of this this space that makes it so unique. So in that way, um, like a, a good example of this would perhaps be the the travel rule, which was um, implemented by the Financial Action Task Force in 2019. I mean, this is a very old rule that was created for banks, and blockchain is a completely different underlying technology. So. There was some frustration from the industry that this, this recommendation and now regulation in some jurisdictions is not actually fit for purpose. Um, so it's been very difficult for industry to meet those requirements because there's a bit of a mismatch in terms of the requirements of the rule and what the technology was actually designed to do. Um, having said that, I think the industry has done an amazing job of responding to the requirements and building solutions. Um, but there's still many challenges along the way and uh, we certainly haven't reached full implementation. So uh, I, I think that's that's a huge problem that needs to be tackled. Um, but as I said, you know, blockchain is actually um, completely transparent and could be a regulator's best friend in terms of being able to trace illicit activity and uh, hopefully even prevent it. Right. I, I like that term, a regulator's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's speak a bit about, you know, the financial inclusion or the economic development side. I mean, you touched upon it when you spoke about the uh, video. Uh, uh, so, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work uh, in this area, uh, but how do you see it moving forward? What is the future of, let's say, the use of uh, crypto or blockchain or virtual assets uh, in economic development or financial inclusion? Yeah, this is a really tricky one. Um, I think the there is such a fine balance between achieving financial integrity versus financial inclusion. And in my experience, I think uh, integrity always wins. Um, AML CFT is always uh, the, the top priority. Uh, and there is certainly incentives for financial institutions to make it the top priority. Whereas in terms of inclusion, I don't think the same incentives exist. Um, but the balance is tough. You know, I'm also not going to stand here and say that we should uh, get rid of all AML CFT requirements because the, the risk is very real. Um, and to use a, a non-crypto example from here in the Philippines, um, there was obviously a, a huge issue with uh, Westpac's LightPay, which was facilitating cross-border microtransactions. Great use case for crypto, but this was through a traditional financial institution. And that service was exploited in order to uh, target vulnerable communities and um, commit horrendous acts. So the risk is real um, and we do need to monitor it closely. But I think that the key is making sure that the, uh, the regulations and the compliance requirements meet um, the, the associated risk. So uh, it should be proportional essentially to, to the type of risk that's, that's involved. Um, one of the things I saw recently, I really uh, appreciated the Rusi 
um, inquiry into FATF's impact on financial inclusion. And just as an example of something that came out of that, uh, I love their approach to thinking about how financial inclusion could actually help meet integrity goals. And here in the Philippines, um, I think that that is uh, that idea really rings true because I mean, it's only 23% of the adult population that actually have bank accounts here. And uh, a 2017 survey by the Central Bank of the Philippines showed that um, by and large, the reason that people didn't have bank accounts was because they didn't earn enough money. Um, but there's other reasons too, for example, that people don't have the necessary um, ID documents to be able to access those kind of financial services. So, um, in terms of looking at how we could include more of that population, I mean, it's not like that 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 segment of the population isn't using financial services. They usually go through informal channels, and that might be because they can't access formal channels, or perhaps they can't afford the high fees that are associated with fully compliant regulated institutions. Um, but there's many different complex problems there, and I think uh, if we did put inclusion as a top priority, it could meet um, many many different goals. From many different parties. Um, a good example of one would be uh, Coins.ph here in the Philippines. They're a crypto exchange and crypto wallet and they now serve over 10 million Filipinos here so um, they've had massive adoption but um, in their early days they had very very low KYC requirements um, up to and including a, a certain level or a certain volume of transactions that the wallet would be allowed to do. So provided that you're only moving a small amount of money um, you only had to provide an email. And I personally think that that has been a way that they've been able to reduce a lot of the friction for people to be able to get into these digital systems. Um, and, uh, you know, just a, an interesting note on that, uh, in the early days of coins.ph, the North Star metric that they had on their website was the number of hours that they'd saved people waiting in line to go and pay bills because they were able to now do it through their digital wallet. So looking at how you know AML CFT requirements can create huge friction for these types of populations and looking at well is other requirements proportional to the risk associated uh, and and if not is there a way that we can reduce that so it can make it more inclusive of more populations I think are very important conversations to be had but they're not usually had so that's why I really appreciated the uh, the Rusi inquiry. Right, right, excellent. So, uh, Leah, uh, you know, the FinTech community is mainly uh, AML CFT compliance professionals. Uh, and, you know, we uh, keep hearing from them that, you know, it is challenging to keep updated, you know, with the latest happenings in crypto. Uh, and they also have this fear of the unknown, right? Uh, so, what is your advice to the AML CFT compliance community to, uh, you know, how should they keep abreast in this area, understand typologies? Uh, implement them effectively and, you know, safeguard the financial and reputational well-being of their bank or institution, uh, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, I, I really think that this is a disrupt or be disrupted type of moment 
uh, for, and for any compliance professional that wants to um, stay abreast of new technologies and make sure that they remain relevant within their company and their industry, it's really important to, to watch how this is developing. Um, and it's, it's moving very, very quickly. I think even 18 months ago, uh, when the price of Bitcoin was very, very low, uh, it was hard to imagine seeing great institutional adoption, but that has changed even in the last 12 months. Um, so now, even if your company isn't thinking about or, or you're not aware that they're considering dealing with crypto assets right now, I'd say it will be on the agenda within the very near future. Um, this really is the future of money in one way or another uh, in terms of uh, just digital payments technologies, but also cryptocurrencies in themselves. It really needs to be on everyone's agenda. So um, I would say a, a great way to learn is to uh, check out some of the content available. There's some, um, I mean, obviously uh, beyond Fintelect, because I know you guys are doing some really great stuff, um, but have a look at some of the reg tech providers that actually deliver solutions in this space. So some of the blockchain analytics firms, for example, uh, put out some absolutely brilliant and fascinating content around how they actually go about uh, tracing and monitoring illicit activity. Some examples would be Elliptic, Chainalysis, CypherTrace. Um, sign up to their e-newsletters. They, they put out great stuff. Um, Coolbix is another one. Uh, they have a, a travel rule solution uh, that they, they provide, but um, they do some great content as well. Um, for anyone who's feeling really brave, I would say go on Twitter. That's where most of the, the crypto community resides. And there's some fantastic discussions there in terms of the push-pull around how do you um, how do we actually progress toward the crypto community's goals of decentralization? And how do we honor um, core values of the community, such as privacy, uh, while still meeting compliance requirements and ensuring that the technology is not used for nefarious purposes? Um, and that's, as I said, really difficult balance to strike. So that Twitter is a great place where a lot of people will sort of have debates and, and fight that out in a public forum. Um, but there's also some excellent uh, bodies around the world, industry bodies that uh, are doing great stuff. Um, Global Digital Finance is a good example of a body that is coming up with uh, uh, essentially crowdsourced policy. So uh, I think that they're a great example of um, uh, a body that is really um, setting the benchmark in terms of industry consultation to ensure that, say, self-regulation practices are delivered in the best way and uh, you know avoiding unintended consequences. So um, that's just a few. There's plenty more. Um, if anyone wants to reach out, I'd be happy to chat as well. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Leah, for joining us today. Thank you for all those insights. I think it's going to be very useful uh, to uh, anyone who watches uh, this particular episode. Uh, I think we will also um, uh, put in the uh, link to that video that you mentioned in the uh, course description to the episode so that people can access that if they wish to. So thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.